Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I think in order to properly understand a man like Nicodemus, we actually have to take a look at several different events in his life. Now, he only shows up four times in all the scriptures, and each of his appearances are contained solely within the Gospel of John. And so it would be easy to dismiss Nicodemus as a minor figure in the story of Jesus. But without Nicodemus, Easter Sunday might be dramatically different than it is. And without Nicodemus, we may not have one of the most famous and beloved passages of Scripture in all of Christianity. So this morning, I want you to learn more about this man, Nicodemus, and how he met Jesus. But before we spend too much time in John chapter 3, I want to tell you about some of the other stories of Nicodemus. And just to make things fun, let's tell the last story first. Jesus has been crucified, and he is dead. Now, the punishment of crucifixion was uniquely Roman. And they were very good at it. It was intended to be a public form of execution as a deterrent, not only as a punishment for the one who has been convicted, but as a deterrent for any who would look upon him and know that Rome cannot be questioned, that Rome is all-powerful. Because of this, normally, the victims of crucifixion would be left up on the cross for weeks at a time. The placard above them would name the crime for which they had been committed, at which they had been executed. Again, to remind people, if you cross Rome, you will end up on this cross. But Jesus' body is not left up for weeks. Instead, Two men take a risk to take the body down on that first day. Now, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are the two men who step forward and ask permission from Pilate to go take the body down early. Now, it's a minor miracle in itself that Pilate assents to this request. But Pilate, you may remember, didn't really consider Jesus that consequential anyway. So sure, take him down. The second interesting thing is that these two men, these two Jewish leaders, violate the law of their faith by touching a dead body, making themselves unclean in the process. But for Nicodemus, it seems, none of that matters now. 
They take Jesus to an unoccupied tomb nearby where Nicodemus anoints the body with a mixture of aloe and myrrh that John tells us weighed a hundred pounds. Now it's hard to accurately compare that with how much it would cost today. One rough estimate said anywhere from $100,000 to $500,000 worth of spices and oil. So we learn that Nicodemus is a tremendously wealthy man and that he loves Jesus very much. Sundown is fast approaching and they hurry to complete their work before the Sabbath begins. So you see, without the generosity loving devotion of Nicodemus on that sad Friday evening. Without him, there would be no tomb for the women to find empty on Sunday morning. So from Nicodemus' final story in the gospel, we've learned that he's very wealthy and that he loves Jesus. And we don't know where his wealth comes from, but we do see in Scripture the development of his relationship with Jesus that will culminate in this loving and risky act. The first time that we see that he meets Jesus comes from our Gospel reading this morning, John chapter 3. And John's first sentence is a wealth of information about Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a leader of the Jews. So in this one sentence, we, we learn that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And, and we often make the mistake of, of painting all the Pharisees with the, the broad brushstroke of, of being the bad guys in the gospel story. But we have to remember that the Pharisees believed many things that the disciples and Jesus would believe. The Pharisees had a deep respect and love for the law, including that part of the law that said you must love God with everything and love your neighbors as yourselves. But they spent their life debating the finer points of what that meant to be lived out. Who you ate with, how you washed, what rules you followed. The Pharisees also believed in resurrection. They believed that one day the Messiah would come and the faithful of God would be bodily resurrected into a kingdom and rule with the Messiah in a new Jerusalem. Nicodemus was one of these, a Pharisee. And so when he began to hear about this itinerant preacher wandering around talking about loving God with all that you have and loving your neighbor as you do yourself, talking about the resurrection and talking about the kingdom and Nicodemus had heard perhaps some had even begun to call the Messiah. Well, you can imagine this got Nicodemus' attention as a Pharisee. But we're also told that he is a leader of the Jews. And elsewhere we know that this is a formal title not just a description of someone who's active in their community. He's a recognized leader, which means, and this will be made more explicit later in the gospel, that he is a member of the great Sanhedrin. 
In Jerusalem, the great Sanhedrin functioned as a combination between uh, your local city council, your court of appeals, and your Sunday school. It was the great Sanhedrin that was representative of all the elders and leaders of the community. It was a diverse place. You had Pharisees and Sadducees. You had um, uh, respected priests, and you had great scholars in the law and civic-minded individuals. They considered themselves the legitimate successor of the great leadership council established by Moses during the Exodus. So you see, Nicodemus isn't just any old Pharisee or any old rich guy. He's part of the elite, the establishment. He's one of them whenever you say they make all the decisions. He has much, much to lose by being associated with someone like Jesus. Which is why, perhaps, he comes at night. He comes at night to lessen the chances that someone might see him hanging out with Jesus and, you know, get the wrong idea. But it also helps to make a larger point in the Gospel of John. I I think I've said this about 78 times in my uh, few weeks of sermons. But remember, John's Gospel is written on two different planes, two different levels. There's the basic level, the narration of what's going on, the the basic facts of the story that the the participants of, of the gospel are aware of, but there's this deeper level, or shall we say, higher level, in which we as the readers know what's really going on, that this Jesus guy is the Word made flesh, the light that has come into the world. You see, John wants us to understand there's something deeper about Nicodemus coming at night. See, even though that Jesus is the light of the world, this light has come in, but at present, the darkness can't seem to comprehend the light. Jesus is the light of the world, sure, but Nicodemus is still in the dark. Not yet able not yet willing to see in Jesus the light that brings life. But Nicodemus says, because of what he's seen and heard so far, he's come to believe that Jesus has indeed come from God, which is nice, but insufficient, it appears, for Jesus. Jesus seems not to care that Nicodemus thinks he's come from God. Jesus wants to know, Nicodemus, are you ready to be born from above? It seems that Nicodemus doesn't understand, right? This classic misunderstanding of, well, how can I be born a second time? Do I call my mother and tell her, We've got to talk? No, it's clear, right? That Jesus explains this is not a physical rebirth, a spiritual one, a transformation, a new beginning, a new creation. Jesus isn't interested in Nicodemus' belief. He wants to know, Nicodemus, are you ready to be changed by what you believe? Do you want to remain in darkness? 
Or are you ready to enter into the light of the kingdom of God? A kingdom that Jesus begins to describe with the words that have echoed down through the centuries. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. See, Jesus is offering Nicodemus a place in the kingdom. A kingdom of love and light. A kingdom in which no one will perish, but a kingdom in which all will live. And Jesus asks Nicodemus if he's ready for that. But we don't get Nicodemus' answer. At least not yet. Perhaps he's not ready to answer. Maybe he's afraid of saying no. Maybe he's afraid of what it would mean if he said yes. What it would mean for his place in the Sanhedrin. What it would mean for his standing in society. What it would mean for his wealth. What it would mean for his future in Jerusalem. But if he says no, might he miss something far more important? Now, several chapters later in John, Nicodemus appears again. It's one of his lesser-known stories. He only has four, right? In John chapter 7, Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem during the festival of Sukkot. Uh, The festival of Sukkot was another one of those major pilgrimage festivals like Passover in which many people would come to Jerusalem for uh, the day. Uh, The Israelites would come for Sukkot as a way of pilgrimage to remember the Exodus. And so they would build these um, temporary booths, these tents, uh, in which they would kind of rough it for a week, remembering what it was like to live in the wilderness. And it's during this festival, as people are remembering God providing for them in the wilderness, providing manna from heaven, providing a leader to bring them to the promised land, it's in this moment that Jesus is teaching them, if any one of you is thirsty, come to me. And let the one who believes in me drink. Now the crowd who's been living out in the, in the open air for weeks, a week or so, they, they begin to clamor and, and to argue about what Jesus means and, and, and what he is. Is he a prophet? Is he a Messiah? Still others are saying, look, he's from Galilee. He couldn't possibly be of any importance. And the crowd begins to get into a bit of a fight, in fact, so disruptive that somebody calls the police. The temple police come and they begin to interview And one of the guards notices the chief priests and the Pharisees, the leader of the community, right, standing on the side of the fighting mob. And they go up to them, and it's just then, with the police there, with the other leaders there, that Nicodemus says, look, listen, we've been waiting for an opportunity for this Jesus to present his argument. Why don't we let him, you know, have a hearing? Why don't we let him state his case? Why don't we give him the floor for a bit? 
he'll either prove himself right or prove himself wrong. Isn't this what you want? The Pharisees, however, are disgusted with Nicodemus and they walk away. Now, this isn't exactly a public confession of faith in Jesus by Nicodemus, but it was risky nonetheless, right? He's one of them, the Pharisees, the leaders, the people in charge. Jesus is an outsider, a, 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 a person that you don't want leading the people astray. And there's Nicodemus saying, well, let's hear him out. Let's hear what he's got to say. Why the police are over there arresting people for disorderly conduct. Well, then we get to the final scene involving Nicodemus. But it's actually important not for what Nicodemus says, but for rather Nicodemus' silence. You see, after the betrayal and arrest, Jesus is brought to the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. This group normally met only during the day. In fact, the Romans had outlawed nighttime meetings of the Sanhedrin. But the priests, the Pharisees, and the other respected men are willing to risk their own arrest in order to deal with Jesus quickly. The Sanhedrin hear the charges against Jesus, but it's clear the trial is a sham, the fix is in, the verdict has already been decided. Even when the witnesses began to conflict in their testimony, nothing can be done, and it's obvious the Sanhedrin is not interested in the truth. But this is the moment that Nicodemus had asked for, right? A chance for Jesus to defend himself, to make his case, an opportunity for genuine dialogue, the possibility for the Sanhedrin to see in Jesus what Nicodemus had first seen on that dark night. But here, when it perhaps mattered the most, and when it was the most dangerous, Nicodemus says, Nothing. Not a word of defense. Not even a point of order. Or a question of why we are meeting illegally. His silence condemns Jesus. So what do we make of Nicodemus? He believed that Jesus had come from God, but he was unsure of what it meant for him. He wanted to ask Jesus lots of questions, but only under the cover of night when no one would notice. He was willing to stand up for Jesus one second, and then in the most important moment, he sits in silence as Jesus goes to his death. But then after it was all over, he was willing to pay any price to give this man he barely knew a proper burial. Nicodemus is often called the secret disciple because of all of his clandestine activities. 
but perhaps we should call him something different. Maybe we call Nicodemus a modern disciple. Because in Nicodemus, I have to confess, I see a person a lot like me. I believe Jesus has come from the Father in heaven. But there are times that I'm scared of what that truly means for my life. See, if Jesus has come from above and tells me that I need to be completely transformed, that means I'm going to have to change some things in my life, and I don't like to change. If God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus, that may mean I have to be more loving, more forgiving. If Jesus came not to condemn but to save, maybe I'll have to be less condemning. See, like Nicodemus, I have tons of questions, and I would love to talk to Jesus all day, but I'm busy. I've got things to do. I'm a respected leader in the community, and I can't just spend my entire day talking with Jesus. You know, I don't want people to think me a religious fanatic, right? Besides, I'll defend Jesus any day, any time, any place, as long as it's convenient. And I have to wonder, if it were truly a matter of life and death, would I be nearly as bold in that moment as I am on this platform? be honest I don't know and so I have to confess my sin of uncertainty now I'm lucky to live in a time and a place where that's not a question I perhaps will get to very often in my ministry and so I wonder But here's the thing. Even though I see Nicodemus in myself, I take comfort in the fact that even after his failure, Nicodemus came back. Nicodemus lovingly embraced Jesus, the one in whose death he lovingly embraced the whole world. Even a sinner like Nicodemus. Even a sinner like me. You see, even in failure, God works through Nicodemus to bring about something truly good. Nicodemus comes back and he lays Jesus in the tomb wrapped in beautiful linen and anointed with costly spices. And it's there, it's there that 
Nicodemus finds forgiveness. But the good news is that three days later, Jesus came back for Nicodemus and for the whole world. Why? Because God so loved this world. Amen.